The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this uh, end-of-the-week edition. Appreciate it. Uh, follow us at danproftshow.com, at danproftshow on social media. As uh, states, uh, some states continue to reopen while others are pausing their reopening, like Texas and some with states, uh, including Texas and Arizona and Florida, seeing a spike in infections. Uh, Some states seeing an increase in hospitalizations. But really, uh, it is not, uh, at least the data we know to this point, changing the general understanding of the virus. Uh, And by the way, these case spikes as we opened up were predicted, not with uh, precision, because what has been precise about the predictions with respect to this virus, but they certainly were predicted. So I don't know that the um, associated uh, pandemonium that the media is trying to generate is warranted. And in addition to that, even as some states are opening up like my uh, a little bit more like my home state of Illinois, which is well behind other states that have opened up, we're getting chastised by the uh, designated politicized public health officials on matters like masks. Give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's probably similar in states that are lorded over by uh, governors and uh, cities, by mayors that were quite uh, excited about the lockdowns. This is Illinois' Department of Public Health Director, Dr. Ezekiel, with a message to those individuals not wearing masks. I have to talk specifically to you. Your individual actions or even your inactions will still affect everyone in this state. I'm likening the refusal to wear face coverings to uh, a game of Russian roulette. As we don't know who's infected, we don't know if we are infected, we're just taking a chance. This game of uh, Ruskaya Rulietka is a game that is very risky. The stakes are high. It's potentially fatal. Let's not gamble with coronavirus. We don't even know the long-term effects of having COVID-19. What might happen to our lungs 5, 10, 20 years from now after being infected? There's nobody that can answer that question right now. No, true. Um, (laughs) There's nobody that can answer all sorts of questions, uh, you being one of them, uh, despite pursuing policies where there are questions that are left unanswered. We do have answers to questions like reintroducing the infected into nursing homes, which Illinois was one of the states that did catastrophically. That's how you get 1% of the population uh, representing 50% of all deaths. Can't say that enough. And yet you get the moral indignation and the, uh, appreciate that, the, uh, the original Russian, uh, Dr. Zike, more of a polyglot than she is a public health professional, uh, as uh, I have borne witness to her pronouncements along with the governor's over the last three months, it's uh, it's really something the uh, Pravda nature in the original language of these uh, uh, conversations or directives really coming from public health professionals. For more on this matter, though, of masks and uh, and safety, public safety with what we know and what we don't know, we're pleased to be joined by Louis Ignaro, who is a professor emeritus of molecular and medical pharmacology at the School of Medicine, UCLA. He's a Nobel laureate in physiology for discoveries pertaining to nitric oxide as a widespread signaling molecule uh, molecule in the body. He's also 
known as the father of Viagra. That's quite a range. Uh, <laughs> Professor Ignaro, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here, Dan. Thank you for the invitation. Well, um, before we get to Viagra, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, what, what about the uh, the insistence from some, like the uh, doctor that I played for you, she's a pediatrician, uh, who say that not wearing a mask, including outside, which is the demand in Illinois, is tantamount to playing Russian roulette? Well, you know, I, I don't want to play politics, of course, Dan, because, you know, I'm a scientist and, uh, you know, I, I go by what I understand regarding the science. And what I can tell you uh, really is that this particular coronavirus is, you know, it's quite dangerous. It's virulent. Uh, it's uh, highly contagious. And um, I've seen a lot of studies published, including one two weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very prestigious medical journal, showing that uh, when this virus gets into the lungs, I mean, it, it really destroys the lungs completely and also gets into other areas of the body. Now, what we do know about this virus or any other virus is that if you can protect yourself, if you can wear a mask, then uh, obviously much, much less of the virus will come out of your lungs if you have tested positive for the virus. And very importantly, if somebody is walking by you and, um, you know, and, they, and they breathe heavily or cough or whatever, uh, that virus can travel actually quite a few feet. So if you're wearing, if both people are wearing a mask, that simply lessens the, um, you know, that lessens the chances of becoming contaminated uh, with the virus. But, um, you know, some people like to scare everybody else and say, you know, it's absolutely imperative to wear a mask and so on and so forth. And, you know, I just take the easier point of view. You know, the science is shown in many different diseases, many different endemics, uh, 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 pandemics with influenza and so on, that by wearing masks, you can control the situation more or less. Maybe not completely, but you can offer some control. Well, uh, yeah, and, and I mean, just on the science, I, I, that stands to reason, and I'm not like ideologically opposed to masks. I am opposed to fear-mongering. But uh, the, uh, yeah. the, 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 um, there's just not a lot of science to back that up, particularly with respect to the use of surgical masks or just a face covering like a bandana. I mean, we, we had this conversation uh, yesterday with uh, Dr. Roger Klein, who is the former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and he said the same thing. Is I, I, you know, I'm, I have no opposition to masks, but I mean, there's just not a lot of scientific studies that suggest what some of these public health professionals are saying about masks as this this uh, prophylactic. Well, I, I think that the quality of the mask, you know, is pretty important. So if you just take a scarf or a handkerchief and you wrap it around your face, uh, you know, I. I, that's not my area of expertise, and I don't know how effective that would be if you have these really good surgical masks, like the N95, they're called masks. Mm -hmm. uh, those, um, those will work because, you know, physicians, people who are treating those with a virus in the ICUs and so on, very, very rarely does one of those physicians actually contract uh, you know, the virus. And meanwhile, they're working with patients who are dying from the virus, but they're wearing really effective masks, maybe even two. Right. And those certainly would work a lot, lot better than a simple scarf or an ordinary cheap mask. 
But, you know, I don't know what to tell people. I mean, I, it seems to me it's reasonable, you know, to ask everyone, uh, you know, to wear a mask or more importantly, you know, to stay away from other people. I think if you keep a certain distance, Dan, then, you know, I don't want to say it, but if you keep a certain distance, probably the mask may not be necessary. But it doesn't hurt to wear the damn thing. Uh, the but, important thing is to separate people from from one another because this virus does um, it, 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 it's very contagious. Right, but but um, but the, you know we also have some information from studies about transmission outside versus inside confined spaces that seems to be significantly different, and and so you know some of the sort of seeming arbitrariness or the lack of nuance to some of these policies i think is concerning to people and i wonder um thinking about uh, uh that about, about masks and since you you were a nobel laureate in uh, how the body produces nit- nitrous oxide and breathing um what about concerns that people have and some anecdotal incidents that have been reported about people getting headaches because they're breathing in carbon dioxide for for, for with, with extended periods of wearing masks well, you know, uh, the, the, the way I can answer that question, because I'm not a, uh, a, phys- a practicing physician. I don't see patients anymore with strictly uh, basic research. Okay. But my wife is an anesthesiologist, so she's wearing a mask. She leaves the house with the mask on, and she comes home with the mask on. And she has said over the years that uh, you get used to the, the mask and that it really there's enough permeability in the material such that there is little or no carbon dioxide accumulation. You know, that's coming from an anesthesiologist who wears a mask all the time. And that's, that's all I can tell you. You know, I've never made any measurements, so uh, I do not know for sure. All right. When we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you've written about recently with his, uh, which is about breathing during the pandemic. And it's interesting. One of the things that suggested uh, the 478 method is um, something that um, my golf instructor uh, suggested to me as a way to, you know, sort of be calm and centered, uh, uh, mindful during while I'm playing golf. So I just I want to get into that because I think it's really interesting. We're talking to a Nobel laureate, Louis Ignaro, professor emeritus of molecular and medical pharmacology, School of Medicine at UCLA. We'll be back with more right after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Professor Louis Ignaro. He is a professor emeritus of molecular and medical pharmacology at the School of Medicine at UCLA, Nobel Prize laureate in physiology for discoveries pertaining to nitric oxide as a widespread signaling molecule in the body. And I, I still hope we can get to um, also why he's known as the father of Viagra. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the, the right way to breathe during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Professor? Yes, the correct way to breathe during this pandemic and actually throughout life. But let's focus on this pandemic. The proper way to breathe is to inhale or breathe in through your nose and whenever possible, breathe out through your mouth 
instead of the nose. But the important thing, most important point I want to make is breathing in through the nose. And the reason for that is your nose, but not your mouth, produces continuously a molecule, which I discovered many years ago, called nitric oxide, or NO. And don't confuse this with nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas that you get in the dentist. (laughs) So when you breathe in through your nose and carry the nitric oxide into your lungs, the nitric oxide does three things. So when you get the nitric oxide in the lungs, you improve the blood flow and you improve the oxygen delivery. This means more oxygen can be extracted from the air and delivered into the blood in the lungs, and then that travels throughout the rest of your body. The third important point about nitric oxide is that nitric oxide is well known to kill or inhibit the growth of microorganisms such as bacteria, parasites, and in this case, we're talking about viruses, and it specifically can kill the coronavirus. So getting NO into the lungs is, of course, very important during this coronavirus pandemic. And you cannot get your own nitric oxide into the lungs by inhaling through your mouth because your mouth just doesn't make any. So it really has to come from the nose, which continuously produces nitric oxide. And, and you make the point in, uh, in your piece at uh, theconversation.com that uh, inhaled nitric oxide is currently in clinical trials as a possible treatment. Yeah, this is a fantastic thing. About 20 years ago at the Massachusetts General Hospital, inhaled nitric oxide was being used for the first time to treat these poor babies who were born with high blood pressure in the lungs. It was a congenital problem at birth. And these babies, most of them, you know, were blue in color and would die. And uh, by inhaling nitric oxide, the nitric oxide improves the blood flow dramatically into those uh, lungs, allowing for oxygen exchange. And you could actually see, and I've seen it, you could actually see these blue babies turn pink within an hour or so after getting inhaled nitric oxide. So that was a great use. And, And it's still being used for that. With the coronavirus, it was shown back, you remember the SARS outbreak in 2003, 2004? That was a very limited pandemic. It didn't spread very much, but inhaled nitric oxide was tried there and found to work. Okay, so that's important. So now, because of what we know about the effect of inhaled nitric oxide in the original SARS outbreak, there are five clinical trials going around throughout the country such as in Massachusetts, Texas, Alabama, and I don't recall the others, but these are ongoing trials giving these patients who are sick with COVID-19 inhaled nitric oxide in an attempt to determine whether or not this nitric oxide is going to work. And, uh, you know, personally, because I'm an expert in NO or nitric oxide, I, I think it's going to work. And if it does work, it's going to be fantastic because it's going to lessen the need for ventilators yeah. and beds yeah. in the ICU. Yeah, no, that would be fantastic. That's encouraging as well. So going back to the breathing, you know, in through the nose, out through the mouth, and you yeah. m- mentioned the, the benefits from um, relaxing the vascular smooth muscle, easier to breathe, uh, reducing incre- improves blood flow, so reduces the possibility of blood clots and things like that, which we know have been a problem with COVID-19 patients. Of too. course. And so w- what about these some of these exercises? And I mentioned uh, before the break, one of them that, that I do or did per my, my golf coach essentially 
which was to really get my mind focused or my mind cleared. I mean, it was a relaxation. So breathe in for four, hold it for seven, breathe out for eight. I mean, is there any science behind that or is it just sort of a play to relaxation and breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth? It just has the same benefits. Well, I mean, I think that there, there are different varieties of that kind of breathing that you pointed out. And I think that what has made that popular is not a scientific basis because it's just not been proven as yet, but, but it does work. But now, you know, because of what we know about the nose making nitric oxide and what nitric oxide does, many of us in the field of nitric oxide physiology, we can suggest what the mechanism uh, is. And again, you want to breathe in through your nose to get that nitric oxide into your lungs. That's going to make you feel better all the way around. It's going to increase your sports performance, increase your endurance, because you're oxygenating, you know, the entire body. So that's good. Breathing out is another matter. There are different ways you can breathe out. The most effective way to exhale, for example, when you're exercising or just doing yoga, you know, sitting on a chair or on the ground doing yoga, is to, when you exhale through your mouth, to exhale against some resistance. In other words, exhale slowly, you know, and they make the sound in yoga of, ah, you know, at the end of the yoga. And for years, I wondered, what the hell are these people doing? <laughs> you know, why are they doing that? But the reason is you're exhaling slowly. And while you're exhaling slowly, there's no air movement in your nose, right? Because you're exhaling through your mouth. The nose is continuously making nitric oxide, and it's going into that airspace that's in your nose. So that after a few seconds of exhaling, when you breathe in through your nose, you have that much more nitric oxide in the nose to deliver into your lungs. And I think that's why when you do yoga, you exhale with that sound against resistance. Now, it's not been proven, but, you know, I always tell people, Dan, science is 10% fact and 90% common sense. And that's what we have to use once in a while. That's fair. Now, uh, but before I let you go, I can't tease my audience and not get the answer. You are known as the father of Viagra. Why that's is correct. that? In the early 90s, no one knew what caused erectile function, penile erection, or sexual arousal. The nerves that do that just were not understood. And therefore, there were no drugs to treat erectile dysfunction. We discovered that the nerves that attach to the erectile tissue release our friend nitric oxide, and that causes the erectile response. And so what happened is the, one of the larger pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, saw what we did, and they immediately uh, started working in that area, and literally six years later, they marketed the drug sildenafil, or Viagra. And the development of Viagra was dependent upon the work that I did. Wow. And so, uh, and they, they even admit that. And so I developed an acronym over the years as the father of Viagra, <laughs> which I never minded. I loved it. But sure. my mother, when she was alive, I hate to hear that. She would always say, son, why don't you tell them to stop saying that already? Uh, well, there's men all over the world who believe you should have got the Nobel Prize for that and not for uh, nitric oxide directly. <laughs> Uh, Louis Ignaro, Professor Emeritus of Molecular Medical Pharmacology, School of Medicine, UCLA, Nobel Prize winner in uh, physiology for discoveries pertaining to nitric oxide, which he was explained to us. Professor, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. He is uh, still a free man uh, thanks to uh, COVID-19 protocols. He is Roger Stone, who has uh, been sentenced to 40 months in prison after being convicted on a number of charges as part of the FBI's open-ended Russian collusion investigation. Uh, Stone, convicted of obstruction, witness tampering, making false statements, uh, professes his innocence, as he did throughout. And we're uh, happy to have Roger Stone on the show for his maiden voyage. Roger Stone, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. I think because the Department of Justice issued their response to a court motion yesterday, there's a widespread misperception that my request for a delay in my sentencing has been granted. That is not the case. As of right now, I am uh, have been ordered to report to prison next Tuesday at noon in Jessup, Georgia. I have a motion pending before Judge Amy Berman Jackson who oversaw my trial. As you know, I have filed an appeal based on a number of flaws in that trial, but we're in a hairy situation here. I'm three days away from what I consider to be, because of COVID-19, a deep state death sentence. Why Michael Avenatti and Michael Cohen and Rick Gates, who the Manafort partner who testified against me at trial falsely, uh, are on home confinement when I am substantially older than all of them, I also have an underlying history of asthma and other issues, but I have been ordered by the Bureau of Prisons to report. And the COVID-19 situation at that prison is a little unclear. BOP says they have no confirmed tests there, but the guard, the prison guards union says otherwise. Well, it's important you make that point because uh, it has been reported that the DOJ cited department-wide policies in response to the COVID pandemic, which was the delay in your reporting. And you're saying that's not true. So that's an important distinction. Well, they did. I don't know if there is further delay. In other words, I was convicted in February and they gave me an initial assignment date of June 30th. That has not changed. There's been no extension in that, which I think may have been a a public assumption, maybe even an assumption by Judge Jackson. I've asked for a 60-day extension because the situation at this prison is just not clear. There's a number of outstanding COVID-19 tests that have been administered, but they don't seem to be any results. And the prisoners union, the prison guards union, pardon me, has uh, been very vocal about the fact that there are no protocols, no gloves, no masks, no hand washing. So it is deeply disturbing to me and my family that at my age, I may be sending being sent into a death trap. My motion is not unreasonable, but uh, Judge Jackson's at least not so far doesn't seem to be inclined. I'm only reading the tea leaves based on her public motions. So do you expect to be pardoned by Trump? Well, I mean, there are a number of options here. He could choose to commute my sentence. I really believe I will win on appeal. As you know, probably know, the jury forewoman in my case uh, was kind of caught red-handed afterwards, after the verdict, because she had posted uh, on Twitter and Facebook in 2019 a series of posts attacking Roger Stone and Donald Trump. So it's not just the president. That alone might not be sufficient, even though I think it should. But she was attacking me by name. In jury selection, she hid her knowledge of me. She also hid these social media postings. They were all in a private setting. She didn't take them off a private setting. She kept them on a private setting during jury selection. 
during the trial, and then after the trial, she deleted all of them. Have, have, and we asked yeah. Judge Jackson for the right to subpoena that deleted material. It was denied. So we were told that that, that, that yeah. did not that did not constitute juror bias. Um, that's just one of many issues uh, with my trial that we've and we filed our you know initial papers on appeal. So, but an appeal could take a year. Right. I and may so, not be alive for an appeal. And uh, right. And so, so have you or your uh, lawyers spoken to Trump or anybody around Trump about a possible partner commutation? Uh, it, it is our intention to uh, file a formal application for commutation today. Uh, I've been very forthright about it in my media appearances, though you can. See a terrific interview I gave with Sarah Carter yesterday when I said very clearly that I am fervently praying for justice in this matter, and there is only one man who can do it. Uh, it's not a political matter at this point. It's a humanitarian era, uh, matter. It is a, a matter of both mercy and justice. I can make a very strong case that I was not given a fair trial. At the very beginning, the government made a curious motion. Stone is not allowed to raise the misconduct of the Office of Special Counsel, the FBI, the DOJ, or any member of Congress, Adam Schiff. And the judge granted that. Mm -hmm. That's and, like going into trial with one hand tied behind your back. And, and uh, Why would you make that motion unless you were aware of misconduct by those entities? That was a, an unconstitutional ruling by the judge under Kyles v. Whitney. The integrity of the investigation and the indictment is always fair game for defense in a criminal trial. All right, so the uh, commutation petition gets filed today. Good to know. Roger Stone, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, and God bless you. Will you seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show uh, the michael flynn saga before federal district court judge Emmett Sullivan over, maybe not, argues George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer and blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. Why would that be? Well, George Perry argues that Sullivan is in a no-lose situation to ask for an, uh, a review in bonk at the appeals court level and even take it all the way to the Supreme Court. And now George Perry joins us to explain why he believes that. George, thanks for being with us. Appreciate that. Dan, glad to be with you. So uh, why is uh, Emmett Sullivan in a, in a no-lose situation to try to uh, press on in spite of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals holding? Well, the D.C. Circuit decision ordering Sullivan to go ahead and dismiss the prosecution against General Flynn, that was decided by a three-judge panel and it was a split panel. Two of the judges were Republican appointees. The dissenting judge was an Obama appointee. So if you look at the overall composition of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, before which rehearing by the full court, you have 12 judges. Seven of them are Democrat appointees. Five are Republican appointees. So there is a chance that Sullivan could obtain relief on a rehearing on bank application. But the fact of the matter is whether he wins that or not, he can keep this case going. And by keeping it going, by refusing to dismiss the prosecution, he will continue to provide ammunition 
to the anti-Trump people in Washington because the controversy will remain alive. Flynn will still be facing charges right down through Election Day. So he's really in a no-lose situation. It doesn't cost him anything to seek rehearing on Bonk. And if he does, it's going to make him a hero to the D.C. swamp. And as I say in the article that I wrote for the American Spectator, it will guarantee him a permanent invitation, open invitation to all the right Georgetown cocktail parties. Yeah. He'll be a hero. It'll also guarantee him as a, to be remembered in history, but I don't know that it'll necessarily be positive. I guess it depends on who's writing it. But I mean, this is so yeah. absurd. This may speak to tearing down more to how the moment we're in more than tearing down monuments of abolitionists. You have a judge arguing that he should be able to play judge and prosecutor in a case. And the precedent that that would set, it is the end of the rule of law. Yeah, I mean, look, in the Third Reich, the SS had their own courts where the judge was, you know, a member of the SS and the Nazi party so that they did away with all of this pesky due process stuff your case wound up before one of these judges and the outcome was automatic. Well, what Sullivan has done here is he's decided he doesn't like the decision by the Justice Department to drop the charges against Flynn. So he has, in effect, appointed a private prosecutor in the form of the so-called friend of the court to oppose the government's motion drop the case against Flynn. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I'm not surprised. And, and to some extent, I guess I can't blame Judge Sullivan because uh, the precedent has been set well prior to him. I mean, the precedent was set to, or maybe reset, go back even more. But recent memory, the precedent was set by Justice Roberts at the Supreme Court level when it came to Obamacare. I don't like the way the legislation uh, was written, so I'm going to rewrite it so then that I can rule on it in a way that I want to rule on it, but I can't as it's currently written. So that's what Judge Sullivan is doing here. I don't agree with the Department of Justice's position, so I'm going to put myself in in their position, and uh, we're going to have a redo the same way that Justice Roberts made himself an extra legislator. Well, actually, if you look at this, uh, what Sullivan has done by appointing a private prosecutor, I mean, I got to tell you, Dan, this is Looney Tunes stuff. Yeah. What Roberts did was bad enough, but this goes even beyond that. I mean, by appointing a private prosecutor to take over from the Justice Department to go after Flynn, somebody needs to start sprinkling uh, Sullivan's Wheaties with Thorazine. This guy is just totally <laughs> when, he, when he says, when, you know, when, when you say it's Judge Sullivan's court, I mean, you really mean that it is his court and that all the other <laughs> right. rules outside do not apply. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he, he just makes it, He's making it up as he goes along. I mean, this is insane. And yet, if you read the legal commentators, you know, for most of the mainstream media outlets, they're outraged that this panel of the D.C. Circuit has issued the mandamus writ in ordered Sullivan to go ahead and grant the government's motion to drop the prosecution. It's so crystal clear under the law that a judge does not have a prosecutorial function and cannot ride herd on a decision by the prosecutor to drop a case, just as the judge can't ride herd on a decision by the prosecutor as to what charges he wants to bring 
or what the prosecutor thinks of the evidence. You know, I, I, Judges, I yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, not to interrupt, but I, I use this analogy uh, in, in Chicago where I am, and it works in Philadelphia where you are, too, because you have a similarly disposed state's attorney in Krasner. We have Kim Fox. Yeah. And it would be so. So yeah. I, I just want to understand the precedent that's being set by Judge Shelvin, make sure everybody's OK with it. So if Kim Fox or Larry Krasner in Philadelphia said we're not I, mean, I don't want to pursue charges against this criminal defendant for looting during the uh, riots, you would be OK with a judge saying, well, that may be the, the state's attorney or the district attorney's position. But I'm going to appoint a special prosecutor, a friend of mine who writes op eds, <laughs> and we're going to continue this prosecution of this person accused of looting during the the protests and the riots yeah. and, 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 and yeah. you on the left would be fine with that. I'm so sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, it was so hard to get this thing into focus when, when Sullivan appointed the so-called friend of the court and said, we're going to have a hearing to determine whether or not the government is acting in good faith. It was just, look, I've been at this racket for 50 years as a lawyer. And it was just one of those moments when you kind of slap your forehead and say, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. Uh, this guy is so far off the reservation, it isn't funny. But that's where we're at. And uh, it's clear that if Sullivan wants to pursue this further, he can do that. And as I say, given the political composition of the D.C. Circuit, uh, they may grant rehearing on Bank. Uh, and even if they don't, he can still go on to the Supreme Court with his cause. You know, this whole new novel idea of, hey, let's appoint a private prosecutor here to take over from the faltering Justice Department. So, yeah, it's, it's just, a no-lose situation for the guy. It's just astounding. Uh, George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. With your eyes all from the smoke of the day. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Nicole Hannah-Jones, she the Pulitzer Prize winning founder of the 1619 Project. She has an expansive piece in New York Times Magazine for the weekend. It's time for reparations. That is the title of her piece. She is looking, her organization is looking, the white and black leftist intellectuals driving it are looking to seize upon the uh, lack of moral authority in this country to continue to make demands based on their identity and reap the rewards of making those demands, reap the concessions as the posture from those in positions of authority throughout American culture including government, is appeasement. Okay. A little backstory on Miss Hannah Jones. The Federalist dug up a 1995 a letter to the editor that uh, Miss Nicole Hannah Jones wrote to Notre Dame's The Observer, stating that the white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world. The uh, white's lasting monument was the destruction and enslavement of two races of people talking about Christopher Columbus as well as um, uh, the uh, European uh, to, to talk about European settlers and explorers such as Christopher Columbus and while well, likening them to Hitler, the destruction and enslavement of two races of people talking about the whites, Native Americans and black Americans. The descendants of these savage people, white people, pump drugs and guns into the black community. 
pack black people into the squalor of segregated urban ghettos and continue to be bloodsuckers in our community. Uh, but, uh, you know, before you believe that uh, she doesn't have charity in her heart, she writes, but after everything that those barbaric devils did, I do not hate them. I understand that because of some lacking, they need to constantly prove their superiority. And yet uh, the claim is that uh, uh, black Americans can't succeed on their own terms in this country because of those barbaric devils. I don't know if it's still in present tense since it's white leftist barbaric devils that are mostly in the positions of authority in most of these cultural institutions that, and, and, and economic institutions, or it's just uh, her arguing that it's the legacy of the previous white barbaric devils when they didn't uh, abide the a Marxist philosophy that Nicole Hannah-Jones sports. Uh, so the, the, this is uh, the foundation, the foundational beliefs some 25 years ago of uh, a woman now being elevated as a deep thinker, as an important policy voice, as the um, intellectual lodestar for the reparations and uh, black identitarian political movements. Okay. This is how we get to unity, huh? The one thing I will uh, say, though, is I think, uh, as I uh, as we will uh, discuss with um, uh, John Nolte in the next hour from Breitbart, uh, I have said and will say again, I think it's more likely than not that uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and uh, her fellow travelers are going to get some approximation of what they want, because who in America is willing to stand up to them? Who in American positions of authority to confer such benefits based on race is willing to stand up to them? I don't see a lot of a lot of people that I can put on that list. Do you? Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. BET founder, Black Entertainment Television founder, and billionaire Robert Johnson has uh, been uh, speaking out quite a bit lately on uh, topics of uh, race and uh, economic opportunity in America. And he's got a lot of sensible things to say. I don't uh, agree with him on uh, his reparations proposal, but he is a thoughtful guy. And he gave uh, some great riffs on uh, Fox the other day talking about the guilt of white leftists. Hey, hey, white leftists, you're not fooling him. You're not fooling anybody. You think uh, we care about your guilt and so to me, when I, when I see all of this, changing names, toppling statues, firing professors because they said all lives matter, it, it, it just shows me that white America is continually, still is continually incapable of recognizing that black people have their own ideas and thought about what's in their best interest. He just left out one word. White leftist people are incapable. Uh, he left that out. But uh, he's uh, not wrong, as we know, but just another <laughs> real-time 
example of what he's talking about. The Houston Association of Realtors will now use the word primary to describe bedrooms and bathrooms on its listing service to replace the word master. The Court of Master Sommeliers, which grants wine stewards the sought-after Master Sommelier title, said it will no longer use the term before a sommelier's last name. You know, because master connotes slavery. When you when somebody says, let me see your master bedroom, they are hearkening back to the slave era. When somebody says, um, I'd like to see the wine list from your master sommelier, they're advancing, I don't know, uh, the interests of bondage or something. That's where we're at. Larry Elder joins us now. He'll have insight and humor on this topic. He is, of course, the host of The Larry Elder Show. He is the sage of South Central. He is also the executive producer of the recently released movie Uncle Tom, an oral history of the American black conservative, which is excellent. Uh, I've seen it and I recommend it. Go to UncleTom.com to get it and support Larry's efforts. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Do you feel like we are a more racially tolerant nation now that master has been removed <laughs> instead of, and now we're going to use primary bedroom instead? You know, I was looking at some of the uh, stats in Chicago. What was it, uh, that recent weekend? 14 people shot and killed, over 100 uh, wounded. I got a question. Uh, yeah, 104. How many Confederate generals were seen leaving the scene of the crimes uh, when this happened? I just, just in, in general numbers, roughly how many? How many were seen leaving the scene of the crime? Well, here's you know, the, this whole thing. He, is absurd. Here's the thing, Larry. Um, that one of the problems in urban centers, as you know, is we don't know because we clear so few murder cases. That's another problem. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I heard 75% of them are unsolved. And and Baltimore has three times the per capita murder rate that Chicago has. Uh, as you know, during that weekend, there was a three-year-old killed in in Baltimore and a three-year-old killed in Chicago. The, uh, the, the movie that you produced and that you would take part in as well, Uncle Tom, An Oral History of the American Black Conservative, I assume that, that disposition was the impetus for you putting together this film. Well, well, that's right. Um, and, you know, pretty much my entire career and before that, uh, just for raising my hand and raising a, an, an objection or pointing out something uh, that could just maybe, just maybe, whatever phenomenon we're talking about has nothing to do with racism. I've been called an Uncle Tom, as have Candace Owens, who's in the film, and Herman Cain, who's in the film, and Alan West, who's in the film, and some of the other people who are in the film, rather than this igniting a, a serious, healthy discussion. I mean, why are blacks in bed with the party that does not want to give inner-city parents a choice to opt out of a bad performing government school. I went to Crenshaw High School. That was the high school that was featured in Boys in the Hood. Now 3% of kids in my former high school can do math at grade level, 3%. And it's a Crip school, meaning the, 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 the gang Crips have adopted the school, which is why IC said he went there. Now what responsible parents send their kids to a school where only 3% of the kids can do uh, math at grade level, and the school is run by the Crips. No parent would if they have an option out. Well, the Republicans want to give you an option out. The Democrats don't. That alone ought to be something that we ought to uh, be talking about to rethink this 95% alliance to the Democrat Party. But instead, we're not having that discussion because as soon as people like myself, Walter Williams, Tom Sowell, Shelby Steele raise these questions, they're ignored or called Uncle Tom's. Uh, the th one of the things I like about the film, and I'm not giving too much away here, I don't think, is the beginning and the e the beginning and the end are bookended by I, I think he's a plumbing contractor, plumbing or electrical contractor, right? Right, right. Um, His name is Chad. So, and, and so it's a regular dude, 
uh, entrepreneur, and his story is then interwoven throughout uh, some of the other conversations you have uh, that, that are had with uh, some of the other participants, some of whom you were mentioning. And the reason I like that so much is because what the press corps does is, is caricature black Americans. You're either like a, a celebrity, you're in media, or you're an athlete, or you're you know, uh, being interviewed on the news about something terrible that happened in a in a neighborhood that's beset by violence as if right. there's nothing in between. There's no middle and upper middle income black Americans in every other sector of our society doing success, quietly living out their lives, raising families. And, and so I appreciate it. it wasn't just names in your film. It's also a profile of a black American that doesn't get profiled very much. Well, that's right. And most blacks are working class or better. It's not true that most blacks are poor. Uh, and the reason we chose this man, and you're right, he is a contractor. His name is Chad Jackson, is because he wasn't well known. He wasn't a, a politician. He wasn't a political guy. He didn't have sharp elbows. He's just a regular guy. And he's a Christian, but he was still a Democrat. And a fellow Christian challenged him to read the platform to the Republican Party and Democrat Party. And he did. And when he finished reading the platform, he said, damn. I'm a Republican. And, and the grief he got from friends and family, including his own mom, is, is kind of uh, the driving narrative of the, of the movie. So, um, so, so thinking about the movie, what, what is it that you hope to accomplish from the film and from profiling all these different black Americans, different walks of life, different age cohorts? What, what, what do you want people to come away with? Well, one of my friends who is a liberal saw the film, and he said, it was entirely different than what I thought it was going to be. First of all, I thought it was going to be an autobiography about you. I said, that would have been boring. And he said, the second thing is, I thought you were going to tell people how to think, what to think. And what you're saying is, you are free in America to think. And you ought to be able to do that without being ridiculed uh, as a sellout. I think that once people see this film, and you look at the history of the Republican Party, history of the Democratic Party, and it puts the lie to that notion that they suddenly switched in the mid-60s, all the racists left the Democrat Party and joined the Republican Party. Once once you watch this thing and get a good understanding of the history of this of, the, of this country and of the respective parties, I think that 95% monolithic black vote that goes to the Democratic Party is going to be reconsidered and ought to be reconsidered uh, for the reasons I mentioned. Vouchers alone, uh, illegal immigration is another one, uh, and the fact that Donald Trump is uh, is is doing something about these prisoners that have had very long sentences. About a thousand uh, sentences have been reduced. Uh, most of them have been black men who've had their sentences reduced by an average of around uh, 70 months. So the movie simply suggests maybe just maybe we ought to be rethinking our traditional allegiance for all these reasons and if somebody suggests that we ought to be rethinking this how about listening how about having a healthy discussion as opposed to writing this person off as a coon or a self-loather or a sellout i had this conversation with ryan bomberger from the radiance foundation earlier in the week and just put this to him i'll put it to you i mean in terms of uh, racial cohesion on a go-forward basis in this country, and maybe just cohesion more generally, do you think it is going to necessarily have to be black conservatives who lead the way because, frankly, you have a moral standing in these times that uh, your uh, off-the-shelf white guy like me doesn't? You know, Dan, I hear that a lot. Uh, I got a letter from somebody who lives in Europe, white person, and he said, I saw your film and I love reading videos and books and articles about black conservatives because it teaches me not to be lazy and to appreciate all that I have and it makes me work harder. Wow, I didn't anticipate that. I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I don't really know what the reaction is going to be. Uh, I, I do think that it's a healing movie. It, it's not a offensive, a defensive movie. It's not right. an angry movie. Right. Uh, it, the people that are called names are not mad at the people who call them names. Basically, we, we feel bad that we're not having the discussion that I mentioned. I, I kind of pity people that
to call me these kinds of names because it shows you, you your mind has been polluted by the Democrats, by the media, by academia, and by Hollywood to perceive me as an enemy. You, you, you may not be on my side, but I'm on your side. Mm-hmm. Well, well said. Larry Elder, host of The Larry Elder Show. He's the executive producer of the movie Uncle Tom, An Oral History of the American Black Conservative. And uh, I know the website is UncleTom.com. Where else can they get the movie, Larry? Where else well, should they it. go? That's, that's it? it. UncleTom.com. Yeah. Okay. UncleTom.com. And you're, you're working on uh, streaming distribution as well? Absolutely. We want to get this thing into it. Make it available to anybody who wants to see it. Eventually, that's going to, that's the goal. And hopefully before the election. And hopefully get it into the classrooms, too, if you can get some Absolutely. support for that. He is uh, the Sage of South Central, Larry Elder. Thanks so much for joining us. Best of luck with the film. Thank you. Appreciate it. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, just a note following up on a conversation with Larry Elder. I tweeted out uh, the uh, uh, link to Larry's movie, Uncle Tom, and uh, with a note about, uh, you know, watching Larry's movie and so forth. I, I got uh, put in Twitter gulag because uh, clearly Uncle Tom, which is the name of Larry's movie, as you heard per our discussion, if you hadn't known about it already, uh, violates their hate policy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it uh, speaks to how ignorant are the hate minders who lack the capacity for context or the algorithmic developers for Twitter. I I wonder if uh, the same thing would happen if I promoted Harriet Beecher Stowe's classic, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I wonder. So I've appealed, and, you know, we'll see what happens if I'm released from the gulag or not, as if I care. Per our show yesterday, I should just uh, restart my uh, social media presence on Parler, it would seem. Uh, okay, that note uh, following up, but I, I wanted to get to this uh, wonderful piece in the New York Times. Uh, defund the police. Get rid of the police. Let's, uh, you know, bring in the Fraser Cranes and the social workers to uh, reason with people when there is conflict or when somebody's create, uh, committed a transgression uh, against another person. Well, one Minneapolis neighborhood uh, took this up. Tried to make it uh, their actual community response. This in the Powderhorn Park neighborhood, which uh, is described in the New York Times as a tree-lined Minneapolis neighborhood known as a haven to leftist activists and bohemian artists like Sherry Elbers, who moved into Powderhorn Park three decades ago, became a block club leader, and so on and so forth. And um, after uh, the death of George Floyd, Albers, white woman, white leftist, and many of her leftist neighbors vowed to avoid calling law enforcement into their community. Doing so would add to the pain that black residents of Minneapolis were feeling and could put them in danger. And um, so how's that going for the Powderhorn Park posse? 
Uh, and this, by the way, in a neighborhood, as I understand from New York Times reporting, that's uh, fairly diverse. The majority is white, but uh, I guess 17 percent of the neighborhood residents are black and a, th- a third are Latino. So, OK, uh, what happened? Well, a couple of weeks ago, two dozen or dozens of multicolored tents appeared in the neighborhood park brought by homeless people displaced during the uh, unrest that gripped the city. Well, that's the New York Times sanitized version of the displaced during the unrest. OK. The uh, group of now would grew to 300 new residents seems to grow larger and more entrenched every day. They do laundry, listen to music, strategize how to buy, how to find permanent housing. Some are hampered by mental illness, addiction or both. Some are their presence has drawn heavy car traffic into the neighborhood. Some from the drug dealers. At least two residents have overdosed in the encampment, and had to be taken away in ambulances. Miss Albers. Your uh, champagne socialist of sorts, although this is sort of a middle income neighborhood, as I understand it from the demogra- the income demographics. Not being able to call the police, though, uh, Miss Albers is uh, a little jumpy, a little jumpy with their experiment and putting their ideology into practice. I am afraid. I know my neighbors are around, but I'm not feeling grounded in my city at all. Anything could happen. The biggest day of the year in Powderhorn Park, reports The New York Times, uh, locals often boast is the May Day Parade celebrating laborers. Is that what it celebrates? Celebrating communism. Okay. Since the uh, camp I was describing appeared, the New York Times reports the community has organized shifts for delivering more meals, medical care, and counseling. They persuaded local officials to back off an eviction notice served shortly after the campers arrived. Sure. That's not too neighborly. But now many in the neighborhood uh, are... um, eager for the campers, as they're termed, to move on. I'm not being judgmental, said Carrie Nightshade. No, of course not. Uh, But she says she no longer feels comfortable letting her children, 12 and 9 years old, play in the park by themselves. It's not personal. It's just not safe. Sure. I don't want to offend anybody. I just don't want my kids to be in an unsafe environment. See if you could square those two, huh? On Friday, again, back to the New York Times report, Miss Nightshade sat in a shared backyard with four of the women. Shared backyard. This all sounds so communal. I love the rhetoric. Shared backyard with four of the women who live in neighboring houses. They all had a meeting to vent about uh, the campers. Angelina Roslick burst into tears, explaining she had spent the f- past four years fleeing unstable housing conditions, was struggling more than she cared to admit with the chaos the camp has brought into the neighborhood. Uh, Linnea Borden said she stopped walking her dog through the park because she was tired of being catcalled. My emotions change every 30 seconds, said Tria Hauser, who is part Native American. Thank you for that identifier, New York Times. The woman agreed to let any property damage, including to their homes, go ignored and to request a block party permit from the city to limit car traffic. Rather than turn to law enforcement if they saw anyone in physical danger, they resolved to call the American Indian Movement which had been policing its own community locally there for years. On Thursday night, Joseph Mankovich, last Thursday, we could go Thursday, found a black man wearing a hospital bracelet passed out in the elevator of his apartment building two blocks away from his, from the park. He quickly phoned a community activist, but she didn't pick up. So he felt like I got no choice but to call 911, but only requested an ambulance, not the police. But unfortunately, a police officer showed up anyway and uh, Menkovich was d- disappointed because that's not the way he wanted to resolve it. It continues. Um, uh, 
Mitchell Erickson's fingers began dialing 911 last week before he had a chance to even consider alternatives when two black teenagers who looked to be 15 at most cornered him outside his home a block away from the park. One of the boys pointed a gun at his chest, demanding his car keys. Flustered, Mr. Erickson handed over a set, but it turned out to be his house keys. The teenagers got frustrated and ran off, then stole a different car down the street. Mr. Erickson later said he would not cooperate with protesters in a case against the boys. He realized if there was anything he wanted, it was to offer them help. He still felt it had been right to call the authorities because there was a gun involved. But later on, he said he regretted calling the police. It was my instinct, but I wish it hadn't been. I put those boys in danger of death by calling the cops. What about the fact the boys had put his life in danger by pointing a gun in his chest? I know it was scary, but the cops didn't really have much to add after I called them. I haven't been forced to think like this before, so I would have lost my car. So what? At least no one would have been killed. Assuming that the boys would have been killed if the police showed up. Of course, that's the assumption. So uh, there you go. Powderhorn Park, Minneapolis. Uh, Make sure that your friends who, if you have any, promoting defunding the police and, uh, you know, sort of gooey Woodstock dispute resolution and uh, management of people who commit acts of violence against one another, as we just mentioned, or violations of private property rights or violation of the laws more generally. Make sure they uh, learn about Powderhorn Park so it's eyes wide open when a community near you or an urban center near you wants to try out their ideology and practice like these ladies and these leftist ladies in Powderhorn Park. This is Dan Proud. Shot my gun into the night. I'm going to Disneyland. Oh. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump uh, in Green Bay for a town hall where he was uh, interviewed by Sean Hannity for taking questions from the audience. One of the questions Hannity asked was about uh, him picking all of the fights or taking up all the fights that are picked, particularly with respect to the media. And Trump responded. If I didn't take on the media, I guarantee I wouldn't be here with you tonight. I'd be watching on television. Maybe I'd be in the crowd. You couldn't win. And I have it even to this day. I mean, every the New York Times is so dishonest. The Washington Post is so dishonest. They write things. You can do something great and they can make it sound horrible. You can do something good and they can make it sound beyond belief bad, like it's the worst thing ever. You can do something great and it doesn't get reported. That's in a way just as bad because a lot of people can figure it out. The level of dishonesty in the media is I think they're the most dishonest people I've ever dealt with. Well, there may be a lot of truth to that, but um, he has an ability to get his message out. And the Wall Street Journal opined today that uh, right now he's not doing a very good job, as the recent polling would suggest. Uh, Wall Street Journal writing lately is all but given up on even talking about the pandemic when he might offer realism and hope about the road ahead, even as the country reopens. His default now is defensive self-congratulations. Uh, They also suggest that uh, the one area where voters now give him an edge over Biden is the economy. And he has yet to sort of articulate a clear and consistent vision of where 
he plans to try to take the economy with the specific policy agenda, both between now and November and in a second term. Fair criticism, not been the best uh, couple few weeks on the messaging front for President Trump. We'll put that to our friend John Nolte, editor-at-large at Breitbart, Breitbart.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy Friday. Yeah. What about uh, the journal's uh, view on Trump's messaging and where he finds himself politically? I've been frustrated with Trump for about two months now. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece a couple months ago expressing my frustration that rather than use his daily coronavirus briefings as an opportunity to communicate with the public, as an opportunity to correct the record, he allowed the media to destroy those briefings by engaging in two-hour grudge matches with them, just fighting with them for two hours. And I'm totally cool with Trump being Trump as long as unemployment is 4%, as long as statues aren't being toppled and cities aren't going up in flames and 120,000 Americans aren't dying. So he's arguing that he needs to continue these fights with the media, and that's fine in good times. But right now, people are very worried about what's happening in the country on three fronts, the riots, the virus, and the economy. And he's, he's getting angry at Fox because someone on Fox said something about him that wasn't true. And he's not the president of the Media Research Center. He's the president of the United States. <laughs> Peggy Noonan, now she's no Trump fan, but it doesn't make everything she says incorrect. She writing, uh, frankly, sort of coming from a similar pocket that you're coming from, but but there are some differences. Uh, She uh, adds about his base. He doesn't understand his own base. I've never seen that national politics. The real picture at the Tulsa rally was not the empty seats so much as the empty faces. The board looks, the yawning and phone checking, as if everyone was reenacting something, hearing some old song and trying to remember how it felt a few years ago when you heard it the first time. Uh, she essentially saying, yeah, half his base is with him and, and will defend him and stick with him come hell or high water. But uh, the other half of his base will still vote for him because they know better than to vote for Joe Biden and understand the policies that would be implicated and things like Supreme Court nominees and so forth, as with last time. But they're very frustrated with him, as you're suggesting you have been, for some of the same reasons, and that was in part on display in Tulsa. Yeah, I actually didn't watch the Tulsa thing. I try to take the weekends off and just forget about this stuff. Good idea. But what I saw from Tulsa was the worst thing that a president can do or a worst thing that a presidential candidate can do and that's to not be competent. There was incompetence on display in Tulsa. The incompetence of we have a million people who want to come. The incompetence of spending half a million dollars so that everyone can address the overflow crowd that never showed up. And these are the things that are, that are you can't be incompetent. You can't win a presidential election if you're incompetent. And he's, he's, not, he, he's not been able to wrap his arms around the, uh, the, the riots. He's not been able to wrap his arms around uh, the coronavirus because he lost that. I mean, his, his approval rating was blowing up. He was doing great. And then he allowed the media to destroy those briefings because he just wouldn't stop arguing with them. And then it all fell apart. When we come back with Breitbart editor John Nolte, I want to get to uh, a point that uh, Wall Street Journal editorial better made in praising President Trump's handling of the coronavirus after stumbling a bit out of the gate. Uh, But the difference between the substance of what he's accomplished more generally versus how he's messaging what he's accomplished and what he still wants to accomplish. More with John Nolte when we return. Grab a 
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Breitbart.com's John Nolte, and I want to get to uh, something the uh, journal noticed, as I said before the break. The journal, even though they're critical, also said this about the coronavirus. His record fighting the coronavirus is better than his critics claim after a bad start in late February and March. And that was, I would argue, mainly due to CDC. But he mobilized federal resources to help hard hit states, especially in New York. So he actually did on the merits a pretty decent job, all things considered in the moment. But it was the messaging that devolved into that went on a tangent to his detriment. And so this is sort of a recurring theme that needs to be addressed in some material way if we're being honest about where he finds himself. Yeah, and that's the uh, and he doesn't understand that people don't expect him to be perfect on the execution. Just like when Iraq was falling apart on on Bush, what they expect him is to be cool, to be centered, to be above it all, to show that he is in control of himself, and that's what he's not doing. Another problem he has is that he's up against Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is not someone that people just have a natural dislike of. And Joe Biden is well known. Everything about Joe Biden, as the pundits say, is baked into the cake. So Biden is sitting in his basement, wisely, hiding out. People kind of like Joe Biden. And he's remaining pure as the acceptable alternative. And that's all he has to do to beat Trump is be the acceptable alternative, because right now Trump's negatives are 55 percent. And he's got time to turn it around. But I just don't know if he can. And then the the supposition, I mean, this perhaps is a little bit of conjecture. But boy, if if it stays this way and he doesn't begin to turn around and he doesn't frame the race as particular choices rather than a referendum on him, then uh, you'll see Biden and Democrats try to wiggle out of those debates and use COVID-19 as the cover, won't you? I actually think it's the opposite. I think just like the the Trump campaign overdid the expectations for the Tulsa rally, I think that they're overdoing the expectations for the debate. I mean, right now, the expectations for Joe Biden in the debate are so low that if he doesn't drool and pass out, he could walk out of there a winner. Yeah, I think if he can start frame like like if he can start framing the message and get some discipline and start doing some contrast between himself and Biden, that can help. But it's like the Trump campaign is setting Biden up to win. I mean, Biden did make it through a dozen debates during the primary. Yeah, but you can't hide on it. You, so cannot, what, you can't hide on a stage with one other person rather than seven. I mean, it's, it's a different dynamic. It is a different dynamic, but he did make it through those debates. So this idea that he's just going to fall apart and get destroyed or that people haven't already considered the fact that he's not very bright and that he's a little old yeah. and he's still polling at 48, 49 percent. I think they're setting themselves up for another expectation issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you about uh, overstating, overstating the expectations. And it's just unhelpful. You should be trying to downplay even if you think that you should be trying to downplay it for that very reason. So you get maximum benefit. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, you should be saying this guy's been in politics for exactly for 60 years. He's done 30 debates. He's done two vice presidential debates. You know, we're up against a pretty dynamic guy here. He's very glib. He knows his stuff. 
And but no, that's not what they're doing. They're saying that he's a drooling idiot, and that's that is a big mistake. I mean, right? Because uh, the, the gaffes that are reported on it, so pe- you know, people can come to that determination for themselves. It's not that complicated. Gaff after gaff after gaff, part of his history of the last twenty or thirty or forty years too. Right. So you're closer to this than than we are. The Trump campaign, you know, Parscale may be a, 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 a sharp guy when it comes to manipulating social media, but. What about the team there and the comms strategists and who has his ear and what exactly is the dynamic, particularly after Tulsa? And I don't really care if Ivanka and Jared are upset or not. This is like that's like soap opera baby stuff. But but I'm talking about the actual nuts and bolts of the campaign. You know, who is sort of uh, really driving driving the campaign train? I think it's Trump. I don't think anybody can control the guy. I can't imagine one sane individual who thinks that Trump complaining about a Fox News segment yesterday afternoon, why is he watching Fox News at 11 in the morning? Right. What is going on? Why? You know, I could see him TiVoing it. I can see him watching it later in the day. But what is he doing watching Fox News at 11 in the morning in the middle of riots and statue toppling and coronavirus and 14% unemployment? So I think it's him. I think he's, he's the guy in charge. And nobody can control him. He's the president of the United States. And th- this all falls on him. John, uh, give me your take on the call for reparations. To me, it's looking more likely than not that it will happen in some form or fashion, given the uh, the march of the identitarians. I-, I think people need to understand that this can only go so far. We've been through this before. We went through this in the 60s. I'm not talking about the civil rights movement. That was a totally righteous movement. But all the other stuff, all the campus stuff, that was all Marxism. And this is all Marxism. And I just want people to understand that this can only go so far before there's blowback. Now, a lot of people are expecting blowback soon, and I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think that what we're going to have is a period where things just degrade, especially in the cities to a point, And then people just say, you know what, enough. I'm going to elect Rudy Giuliani or a Rudy Giuliani. So I'm preparing people. They need to move out of the cities if they can. It's going to last a while, but eventually people are going to get sick of it because after a while you can only live like that for so long and think you're doing the right thing. Well, um, I, I wouldn't exactly call your vision optimistic, but it's more optimistic than mine because the, the difference between the, the, the 60s, what was happening on campuses uh, then versus now, is 50 years of building infrastructure. 50 years of inculcating identity politics. So I actually think this is going to be significantly worse and longer lasting than was uh, what happened in the 60s after the civil rights movement. There's a great story in the New York Times about these, this, it's mainly white women in a suburb of Minneapolis, and they decided to keep the police out, and they're not going to call the police. And everyone should read the story because things went to hell almost immediately carjackings. The homeless have moved onto their lawns. The homeless have taken over their park. It's no longer safe there. And that's why I feel pretty good that things are going to turn around quick because that's how bad things are going to get. They're going to get that bad that quickly. And eventually even these liberal white women who are the worst people in America, absolutely, they're going to get tired of this and they're going to get tired of it real quick. So I would urge everyone to read that story because that's how I think this is going to play out. John Nolte, <laughs> just love that statement. John Nolte, editor at large at Breitbart, Breitbart.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good weekend.
you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. You know how um, voter fraud is uh, fiction, part of the vast right-wing conspiracy Hillary Clinton warned about? Trying to gaslight the public into thinking that it's a problem as it uh, relates to the idea of having a national uh, vote-by-mail election come November 3rd, which uh, many states are moving to do, and there are many lawsuits trying to stop many, the many states from, trying to, from uh, doing it. Patterson, New Jersey, this comes to us from uh, our friend Mark Hemingway. New Jersey State Attorney General Gerber Gruel announced Thursday he is charging four men with voter fraud, including the vice president of the city council and a candidate for that body. We're talking about Patterson, New Jersey, New Jersey's third largest city, an annual budget of $300 million. This is um, a substantial place. In the city council election, 16,747 vote-by-mail ballots were received, but only 13,557 votes were counted, more than 3,000 votes, or 19% of the total ballots cast, were disqualified by the Patterson, New Jersey Board of Elections, not run by uh, conservative Republicans, not run by Trump campaign operatives. Patterson's election was done through a vote by mail. Now community organizations, such as the city's NAACP chapter, calling for the entire election to be invalidated. More than 800 ballots in Patterson were invalidated for appearing in mailboxes improperly bundled together, including one mailbox where hundreds of ballots were in a single packet. Another 2,300 ballots were disqualified by the Patterson, New Jersey Board of Elections after concluding that the signatures on them did not match the signatures on voting records. One uh, woman, Patterson, New Jersey resident, telling NBC News that uh, she knew of eight family members and neighbors wrongly listed. We did not receive vote by mail ballots and thus we did not vote. This is corruption. This is fraud is what the Patterson, New Jersey resident said Patterson, just one of 31 municipalities in New Jersey that held vote by mail elections on May 12th. The average disqualification rate for mail and ballots in all 31 elections, uh, almost 10 percent. The ballot rejection rate actually drops to 8.1 percent if Patterson results are excluded, Um, you know, the entirety of the results. But almost 20 percent in Patterson, 10 percent across 31 municipalities in New Jersey. Uh, And now you know why President Trump and others, Heritage Foundation scholars, Hans Ben Spakowski, who's been an expert in the space and former FEC commissioner. Now you know why they're expressing legitimate concerns about voter fraud, not fiction. It doesn't mean that it's systemic, doesn't mean that uh, it's going to be afoot everywhere, but it just needs to be afoot some places to, number one, forget even the point of changing the election outcome fraudulently disenfranchising Americans of their vote. I don't know why that's not stressed enough. It's okay to take somebody else's vote away. It's okay for me to commit voter fraud and take a black person's vote away. Is that the position of those who want to wave this off and pretend that uh, you don't have additional security, ballot security, ballot integrity issues with a, a vote by mail election as compared to a largely vote in person election, even with early voting as a add on? Patterson, New Jersey tells you otherwise. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, I mentioned uh, former Princeton academic and Northwestern University president Henry Beenan as one of those casualties of the purge so far, not in a professional way, really, more in a civic and philanthropic one. I mean, he's uh, retired and he's doing philanthropic work, like being president of the Poetry Foundation, just my own personal tangent here. I think he came in in 95, the year after I graduated from Northwestern, it was announced that he would be replacing Arnie Weber in any way. So he was president of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, for two decades, almost. And he and the chairman of the board of the Poetry Foundation were bounced, the Poetry Foundation, for uh, being too obtuse when it came to understanding the need for more sort of racial oppression-related content in terms of the Poetry Foundation's uh, perspective on the art they would promote. In his letter of resignation as the president of the Poetry Foundation, uh, Beanan said this, I've lost respect for the staff who did not defend themselves or the foundation from attacks they knew to be false. Perhaps some of these attacks could have been headed off if I personally had allowed it to be said that Poetry Foundation was racist, complicit, or whatever else some people wanted. To do that would have dishonored you, the board, me as president, and the foundation and its work. I will not personally dishonor myself or the board or the institution by doing so. At the end of the day, I must look at myself in the mirror and at my wife and children and grandchildren and all of my friends across all groups and identifications. So, adios Poetry Foundation. Well, that's something, at least, of an intellectual and moral stand. And um, even such moral stands on the way out the door are in short supply. For more on this topic, uh, it's not, certainly not limited to academia anymore, but it includes academia. Pleased to be joined by Peter Bergosian, who has felt the sting of the, the purgers. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University and co-author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. Perfect jumping off point. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, an impossible conversation with you and uh, James Lindsay from New Discourses, who we had on the show last week to talk about this topic in part, have a pen to piece for The Spectator. And this is really important. Anti-racism. Anti-racism right. is a term that needs to be defined. It's a particular attitude. Uh, if you've, if the, most people haven't read Ibram Kendi, uh, most people are not familiar with Robin D'Angelo, and you don't necessarily need to become familiar with the depths of their thinking, but you need to understand what people are saying when they say you have to learn to be an anti-racist. I think that's right. And before I talk about that, I just want to say that one of the reasons this is so important, you mentioned it's not just on college campuses in that your previous segment. That's correct. Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece. We're all on college campuses now. Right. And what we've seen in the last, you know, evolve over the last seven, five to seven years is spilling out. And one of the reasons these folks have been so successful is they've changed the definition of ordinary words. They've changed the definition of racism. They've changed the definition of diversity. They've changed the definition of equity and inclusion. And it's almost impossible to have a conversation with folks when they're operating off of different definitions. But let's go back to anti-racism. Basically, anti-racism and racism are not the same things. 
so the basic idea is that there is inherently in every system as an explanation for literally everything is racism. So if there's a disparity, for example, among African-Americans and Olympic swimmers or Navy SEALs, or I'm just thinking of that because I just read that, that the other day, the explanation can't be cultural. It has to be not just racism in the part of individuals, but some kind of a systemic racism. In other words, the whole system is geared toward keeping African-Americans down, as opposed to any kind of inequality of opportunity, for example, African-Americans don't. Funding for schools comes from a local zip code. African-Americans don't get as good a schooling as people in wealthier zip codes, et cetera. So all of this has to be looked through a very specific lens in which they've changed the meanings of words. And so anti-racism, you're in one of two camps. I mean, this is, again, Ibram Kendi, I guess, dichotomy. You're either an anti-racist or you're a racist. And by the way, being an anti-racist isn't just like treating people equally and uh, and living no, peacefully. No, no, right. no, no, no. You have to be right. you have to be an activist in a particular way. Explain. Yeah, that's correct. Here's the fundamental problem. Like, let's say you know nothing about this. Here's the fundamental problem. I could give you at least five injustices facing the world right now. You probably five thousand. You know, global poverty. A plastic in the oceans, the list goes on. You, know, you could not possibly be an activist for everything. How could you? There are too many injustices. Even if you spent your whole life pulling out plastic out of the oceans, like that was your thing, that was your, your cause that you, to which you ascribed, you devoted your life. It's simply not, there, there are more causes than people have time. So the question is, why is it that we went from one moral panic to another moral panic I was just in London months ago, and the Extinction Rebellion was there, and that was all I heard about. Mm-hmm. Then I, we went through the pandemic, and that was all I heard about. And now with the killing of George Floyd, that's all we've heard about, almost to the exclusion of the pandemic, although that's starting to come down. So our moral minds are really overriding our rational minds. But the basic idea is all of these authors, Robin D'Angelo on, and these are not fringe authors, by the way. These are dominating the New York Times bestseller list dominating that list. The idea is that you're either, everybody is intrinsically racist and your denial of the fact that you're racist proves that you're a racist. Right. So it's, it's called the Kafka trap. You can't say, no, well, I'm no, I'm, I'm not a racist because that's complicity in racism and that's your white fragility. So all it's a really, it's, it's, right. it's so, a dastardly system. So then all you can do is take your marching orders from Nicole Hannah-Jones and the like and do what they say needs to be done. Write a check for reparations, uh, turn over right. your job to this person, turn over your home to that person, ah, so on and so forth. Yeah, let's, great. Let's talk about that. So why is it that the white people, you give me the name, I'm going to challenge you right now. You give me the name of one white administrator from an educational system who has been a, a vociferous advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, who has resigned from their job to make way for, for an African-American. One. Give me one. You got me no, there. you can't. Yeah, you can't. You can't because there have, to my knowledge, there have been none. So this is verbal behavior. These people don't believe it. If they actually believe it, they resign from their jobs. Mm-hmm. Your um, colleague, James Lindsay, you co-authored this piece with that we were talking about, suggests uh, over at New Discourses that one of the things that should be part of these impossible conversations that you wrote a book about 
uh, when it comes to what we're discussing here is to ask, what is your breaking point? When will you say it's gone too far? Is it when Mount Rushmore comes tumbling down? Is it when reparations checks are distributed? What is your breaking point to try to get people pinned down so you don't live in this interminable world of Kafka traps, as you were describing, and abstractions? Yeah, I mean, my breaking point was reached years ago. And and people would say, I'm some kind of a crazy conspiracy theorist. They would say there's a group of fringe academics writing crazy stuff. It's just for those people. No one believes it. Many people, myself, Jordan Peterson, other people have come along and said, what happens in the university doesn't stay in the university. Five to seven years, it seeps out. Those people enter the workforce. Look, look what they did to James Damore at Google. Look what they're, the whole, the media, the media, everybody's woke. You know, you, you, you've, you're an advocate for social justice. Now, even think about what that means in itself is that is some, it, it causes a legitimation crisis. Our institutions are in crisis. Our judiciary is in crisis. People simply do not trust their, inf- their leaders anymore. They don't trust the Southern Poverty Law Center. They don't trust the ACLU. They don't trust the uh, epidemiologist who went from an absolute moral panic about a pandemic to saying it's okay to actually releasing official statements uh, encouraging people to protest the George Floyd riots in the middle of a freaking pandemic. So there is a crisis of confidence in our institutions, and that is a much more serious question. So what is your breaking point? My breaking point was years ago. What is the average person on the streets breaking point? The idea that people will rip down statues and the police are there, that's so, I'm 54 years old. Actually, in a month, I'll be 54. And that concept is so bizarre to me you go through legal democratic means. If you don't like a statue, then you you have redress. You have recourse to have that statue torn down. You don't take the law into your own hands. This should, ought not to be Somalia or, or Iraq. But what's happening is that these critical race theories, they're dividing us as a people. We're teaching kids in school in particular to look for grievances in literally everything, racial grievances, sexual grievances. And the consequence of living in that milieu, living in that and being taught that for long enough, it damages it and it it damages you and it damages how you view other people. He is Peter Bragosian. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University and co-author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, CDC reporting yesterday. Dr. Redfield, Kent Redfield of the, uh, excuse me, Robert Redfield of the uh, CDC The outbreak is not over. The pandemic is not over. Greater than 90% of the American public hasn't experienced this virus yet. Uh Uh-huh. The CDC also suggested that rather than the 2.5 million confirmed cases in the United States, the number infected is probably closer to 20 million. Not that we can believe such guesstimates very much these days, uh, generally speaking. But uh, if that's true, then the fatality rate goes from five tenths of a point to like point zero zero six. 
so the continued reporting on COVID-19 infections as a death sentence, this person got infected, that person got infected, three Dallas Cowboys got infected, uh, just seems to be the media continuing to try to whip frenzy rather than provide contextual information that prevails on reasonable minds. And so the unreason continues. And what did Chesterton say about unreason? Once you've given into it, you're ready for unkindness. Unkindness, you know, like 21 million people unemployed, like a, a lack of interest in the opportunity cost consequences of devoting health resources singularly to COVID-19 to the exclusion of people who needed uh, surgeries, elect, quote unquote, elective surgeries and uh, the effects of delaying elective surgeries that, you know, aren't that elective. The fear uh, resulting in people not getting checkups for this or that treatments for this or that the depression that's been induced, the spike in suicides, the spike in drug overdoses, the stunting of children's intellectual development because we made the decision to shut down primary grades a decision different than Sweden, a decision that now Norway and Denmark say, you know what? Sweden was right. How about that holistic conversation? You know, the one politicians don't want to have. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Siddhar Chandra, professor at Michigan State University's James Madison College, director of MSU's Asian Studies Center. He holds, also holds a uh, uh, courtesy appointment with the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. And he had a good piece with some of his colleagues uh, discussing uh, the ways in which uh, the world is better dealing with COVID-19 than they were with the sp- Spanish flu 100 years ago. Well, it'd be nice if we would learn a thing or two, uh, you know, after every century or so. Uh, Siddharth Chandra, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. As you can tell, I'm a little bit fired up by the, the quality of the conversation around this uh, pandemic. But but you point to some things in which uh, the world has handled us better than Again, the, the Spanish flu, which resulted in between 50 and 100 million deaths uh, in 1918. So um, obviously this is much less severe and the, the carnage will be much less significant, thankfully. But uh, give us uh, some areas where you, we should note the market improvement. So there are really five areas that we highlight in our article. Uh, the first is that the world, the systems of communication are far better today than they were over 100 years ago in 1918. Uh, we have almost instant access to um, information about the disease as different people in different parts of the world are experiencing it. And that allows us to be much better informed in our approach. The second um, reason we are better off is uh, Larger numbers of people in the world are living in less crowded conditions, though there are some areas where crowded conditions have actually gotten worse over the past 100 years. A third area is better nutrition. Uh, Tens of millions of people have been pulled out of poverty around the world, especially in Asia over the past uh, three or four decades, and nutrition is very important for the immune system. A fourth area is the demographics, uh, the 1918 influenza attacked younger people, uh, people between the ages of 20 and 40 years, far more severely than is the COVID-19 disease uh, today. And then finally, uh, the obvious, uh, science and technology is, is far more sophisticated today than it was in 1918. Uh, what, what is, your, as you're thinking about this, what is it where we haven't, the areas where we haven't made so much progress? I, I note, uh, uh, going back and looking at some of the history around the Spanish flu, that 
you know, we had some of the same debates in 1918 about masks, for example, that we're having today. Yes. So, we, you know, we're having similar debates today about masks. Uh, the debate between the interest of the economy and the interest of uh, individual health is another one. Uh, for example, in the state of Michigan in 1918, there was a debate between uh, the government and uh, elements in the business community about how long a shutdown should uh, should be imposed on the people of Michigan. It ended up being three weeks long. Um, uh, perhaps most importantly, and, and what is a, a little bit uh, concerning, is that we didn't uh, put into place, uh, we didn't invest as heavily as we should have in vaccine development after 1918. Uh, because at the end of the day, I think what's going to make this pandemic um, uh, uh, not as severe, if you will, as the 1918 influenza is the development of a vaccine. And perhaps we could have been quicker on the uptake when, when we first saw this disease emerge. That, that seems to be the case uh, that has repeated itself uh, a few times over the last hundred years, including after the uh, the, the, the influenza uh, in 57, in 68, uh, the reports that were done, the various committees and commissions put together, even over the last 20 years, we seem to have been making that same mistake about uh, vaccine development as well as personal protective equipment more recently uh, over and over again. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think we, you know, 100 years is the blink of an eye in historical terms, right. but it seems like it's eons when it comes to policy making, and we seem to have forgotten about the 1918 pandemic. And and so uh, t- going forward from lessons learned, and we're still learning and, you know, still gathering info, and we don't have a, uh, a you know, solid uh, therapeutic that's on the market yet, and we don't have a vaccine, although there's, a, again, a lot of optimistic signs that we will, we'll see. Uh, other lessons that we should learn in terms for the policymakers, what should they be thinking about coming out of this pandemic now, even in planning for a second wave, whatever that may look like, and planning for COVID-19 to be with us as like the flu is with us, for example? Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things we seem to be doing is, you know, a lot of us are stuck at home and we're beginning to get fed up of, of just, you know, sitting around at home and not being able to go out and interact with one another. Um, But I I do think that at the end of the day, this disease does have the potential to kill people, especially in more vulnerable populations. And so the first thing we need to do is, is be very, very aware that this virus is still circulating among us. There are millions of us who are still what epidemiologists would call susceptible. And, and so we should not let down our guard. You know, it, it's fine to go out and to start resuming some of the activities that we, we stopped when we first heard about the virus and didn't know very much about it. But we still need to be extremely careful about preventing outbreaks. Um, you know, we are seeing outbreaks um, uh, begin to occur again in communities that are beginning to open up. And that's primarily because we're not being careful enough. I, I think we can open up if we are careful. We can open up successfully. But everybody has to be aware that this disease is still around. It's going to spread. And we have to be very careful about how we open up. He is Siddhar Chandra, professor of Michigan State University's James Madison College and director of MSU's Asian Study Center. Also herds, holds a courtesy appointment with the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Siddharth Chandra, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show 
on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Hank Newsom, president of the Greater New York Black Lives Matter chapter, his interview with Martha McCallum, which was quite zesty. I appreciated his perspective, even though I don't agree with the agenda, because what he is observing is correct. What he's discussing in terms of what people are doing and what is working to cede authority from people in positions of power in institutions to the mob is, in fact, working. Uh, he also addressed this whole notion of violence. I'm all for peaceful protest, but, you know, violence, no violence. Well, Hank Newsom has a different perspective on violence and violence in this country's history that uh, may or may not justify. He's sort of unwilling to take a position, but I think we know what that position is. The history of violence in our country that provides a rationale for some of the violence you're seeing now. You also have said that violence is sometimes necessary in these situations. What exactly is it that you hope to achieve through violence? Wow. Um, it's interesting that you would pose the, that question like that because this country is built upon violence. What was the American Revolution? Mm -hmm. uh, what's our, 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 our diplomacy across the globe? We go in and we blow up countries and we replace their leaders with leaders who we like. So for um, any American to accuse us of being violent, it's extremely hypocritical. You ask what we hope to achieve. We're talking right. about self-defense. We're talking about four or five police officers choking someone to death and someone from the community having the training to intervene effectively. We're talking about saving lives. Nobody's talking about ambushing police officers. We're talking about protecting lives. And there's nothing more American than that. And when we talk about uplifting and upholding the Second Amendment, I think that you should be applauding me, the, seeing as though you guys are huge supporters of the Second Amendment. But it seems to be the hypocrisy of America that when black people start talking about arming themselves and defending themselves, the talk is violence. But when white people grab assault rifles and go to our nation's, uh, their state's okay. capitals, it's all good. Well, Hank, you got that one a little bit backwards. This conservative said, though, the new Black Panthers down in Atlanta that were carrying weapons during their peace march. Uh, doesn't bother me. The Second Amendment rights bother your fellow travelers, the Leonard Bernsteins of the 21st century that are the financiers of the Black Lives Matter movement and so forth doesn't bother me. It bothers anybody exercising their Second Amendment rights, bothers the champagne socialists in charge of these institutions where you are making your claims. So let's just get that straight on Second Amendment rights. And the only difference is they're not going to be coward with respect to their authority if it's just some, I don't know, middle aged white guy in the UP making a claim because he wants to open his business. But they will if it's Hank Newsom making a claim because he's black. That's the actual dynamic happening here. But the perspective on violence, casting black Americans in the role of the Revolutionary War soldiers. These are people who are fighting to free themselves from oppression the same way that the colonists did in the Revolutionary War. That's the metaphor. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Ian Rowe. He is the resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and CEO of Public Prep, which is a uh, network of public charter schools in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Ian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, we have a lot of discussion of competing perspectives on the interpretation of American history. 
What's your uh, reaction to Hank Newsom's comparison to the uh, colonials uh, revolting against the king? Well, I don't have a specific reaction to that. Hank Newsom has actually been to our school. Uh, so as you said, I run a network of public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side, one of which is an all-boys school, an 85,000-square-foot building that was built in a district where only 2% of boys graduate from high school ready for college. And Mr. Newsom actually was visited our school, and, and I think that's where I'd really love to focus our energies in terms of what is it that we're teaching the next generation, given the history of our country, what are the best ways in which you can develop agency, the power to make decisions that increase the likelihood of economic success. You know, I wrote an editorial that was published in the Wall Street Journal because I think a lot of the narrative has focused on you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about particularly this idea that the only ways in which black people can move forward is, you know, whether it's taking up arms or be dependent on white largesse, it doesn't focus on this idea of individual agency and what I call black excellence. Lost in this whole debate is the fact that more than three million black students were enrolled in college or graduate school. That doesn't diminish, you know, whether it's police brutality, every instance of which should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, but we lose sight of some of the great things going on to the vast majority of black kids in this country. When we come back with Ian Rowe, CEO of a charter school network in the South Bronx, I want to uh, get your reaction to how Nicole Hannah-Jones and uh, the 1619 Project would respond, I think, to your argument for personal agency. More with Ian Rowe when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Ian Rowe, and uh, I want to pick up the topic of personal agency that you wrote about in the Wall Street Journal. And here's... uh, how I think Nicole Hannah-Jones and those who come to this from a very different perspective than you would argue about agency. Because what they'll say, the Nicole Hannah-Joneses of the world, no, 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 we believe people have agency. And this is the way to fully actualize that agency is to make these claims against the institutions that have authority in society in order to change them. That's, to me, their sort of intellectual artifice. They're realizing their agency. And what they've realized, as Shelby Steele identified in white guilt 15 years ago, is that the claim is based on identity. And based on my identity and associated status as a person who has been oppressed or has a history of oppression, my my people have a history of oppression, I am making these claims that have to be met or we burn it down. And that works because the people in charge of the institution's to which they're making claims are champagne socialists who are otherwise trying to be fellow travelers, a la Leonard Bernstein and Radical Chic with the Black Panthers, and they will capitulate at every turn. And that's what Hank Newsom is seeing properly. He's seeing that accurately. That's exactly what's happening. So how do you respond to that argument about agency? We're getting what we want by doing it this way, not the way that you say, Ian. Well, I would say that there are, the story of oppression is certainly, when you look at American history, there's a history of slavery. There's also a history of incredible progress and contemporary progress. 
there are millions of black Americans that are succeeding in our country. And frankly, there are a lot of, there are millions of white people that are not succeeding. Yeah. What is it that defines those people who are being successful? And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that when you focus on your education, full-time work, marriage, then children, those are the building blocks for a society in which most human beings are flourishing. That doesn't mean that racial discrimination does not exist, but the institutions through which young people learned these sort of passages into young adulthood aren't talking about these things enough, which is why I felt compelled to write my editorial that was you know, published in the journal in that that's what I thought was missing from the dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, look, I, I agree 100% with you about personal agency, and you, you summed it up nicely in this paragraph where you talk about the great danger of the moment being the idea that an entire destiny of one race rests in the hands of the other. That's actually an expression of a belief in white supremacy, not the opposite, which is a great irony and, as you mentioned, a great danger. Yes. No, and again, for all kids, white, black, Asian, there's a concept many people are familiar with called grit. And grit is this idea of relentless pursuit towards a specific goal. But if you don't believe that your specific behaviors most influence your outcomes, you're not going to have that sense of grit, right? So if you think that someone else is responsible for your life outcomes, the natural human behavior, the natural human tendency then is to step back and then let someone else act as your advocate. And that is not a recipe for ultimate success. There is a shared responsibility when it comes to our country in that certainly, quote unquote, people in power, which, which already includes a pretty racially diverse people, certainly we need structural solutions, policies. Again, if there's instances of police brutality, let's prosecute them. But how about policies such as increasing more charter school opportunities? That's something I haven't heard about. If we're really seeking to educate young people across the country, particularly in low-income or rural communities where schools there have not been succeeding for generations, why do the very same people who are, you know, who are loudest right now not advocating for something like increasing the number of high-quality options that low-income families can get access to. Let's use this moment, not for symbols. You know, the fact that Aunt Jemima's you know, brand is no longer going to be sold in stores, that doesn't create educational opportunity for kids. And so let's use this moment for substantive change that actually ultimately results in young people having more options for their future. And the response you'll get from the uh, black and white intellectuals who are driving the 1619 Project and driving the divisiveness is, you know, that's that's real nice. That worked for Ian Rowe and that's worked for, you know, the, the middle income black family who uh, where the dad is uh, a financial services professional or has a HVAC company or whatever. But it doesn't work for this permanent underclass that was created by white supremacy and the history of savagery by white people in this country. That's who we're speaking to. And so uh, for Ian Rowe and for uh, black Americans who've been successful, that's good. We're speaking for those who haven't been and we're making these demands on their behalf. Well, the whole idea is that we throughout our country, America is based on the idea that there is no such thing as a permanent underclass. Because there isn't just one Ian Rowe. There are more than 3 million, uh, in 2018, there are more than 3 million black students in college 
or graduate school. During that same year, there were 23 unarmed black people killed by police, which, again, is 23 too many. And if there were any instances of police brutality in there, they need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But we can't lose sight of the proportionality. Ian Rowe is not an exception. You know, I'm not an exception. There are millions of black people that are succeeding. Why? What is it about the decisions that they're making? And again, there are lots of non-black people that are suffering in our country. There's an opioid crisis. The non-marital birth rates are exploding in the white community at the highest rate. And so many of the issues that are facing the black community are now not only in the black community, they're universal, and the elements that have defined success for all people also reside within the black community. And so maybe the focus is not so much on the racial identity of folks, it's actually on the behaviors, and this is why it's so important that when we speak to young people about the power that they have, they're not destined to be a George Floyd, right? That is the reason that I'm speaking these things, because we don't want our young people to believe that there's only that their future is preordained solely because of their race. Yes, our country has examples of oppression, obviously, but we also have stories of amazing success that are not exceptions. He is Ian Rowe. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, CEO of Public Prep, which is a network of charter schools in the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, he uh, penned an excellent primer on agency and behavior in the Wall Street Journal, which we'll tweet out. Ian Rowe, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. After uh, yet another difficult week, largely, let's uh, end on an optimistic note, uh, a happy note, a note of uh, someone being a good Samaritan and providing the right example. Uh, this comes to us from Pennsylvania. Uh, Dalen McLee spent a year in jail awaiting trial on bogus charges. He was at a family's Father's Day cookout when he heard a loud crash. He ran outside and pulled police officer Jay Hanley from the mangled patrol car as flames began to spread into the cabin, saving the police officer's life. Dalen McLee said to uh, the Associated Press, there's value in every human life. We're all children of God, and I can't imagine just watching anyone burn. No matter what other people have done to me or other officers, I thought this guy deserves to make it home safely to his family. He, uh, has had a couple of run-ins with police. Um, one where he was accused of, um, uh, of, of instigating a, a bar fight. Uh, he spent a year behind bars before jury acquitted him of the charges after reviewing video of what actually happened, showing that McClee had disarmed a man at the scene and then quickly discarded the gun. He was not the aggressor in that, that case. A few months ago, he had another encounter with the police in which he said he ran from a porch after getting uh, ran from a porch gathering after plainclothes cops approached with guns drawn. They did not announce they were officers. He said he stopped running, put his hands behind his head when they yelled they were police. He was charged with fleeing and resisting arrest. 
and um, he uh, and and that an officer kicked him in the face through a fence, splitting his lip as he was being taken into custody. That's what he alleges in the lawsuit against the police. Said the use of force was caught on a security camera, and he plans to fight the charges. Um, but despite those run-ins with police, uh, one where he was exonerated, and another where he uh, claims he will be exonerated, McClee, black gentleman, stressed the importance of forgiveness, saying he can't blame every police officer for bad interactions he had with with other police officers. We need to work on our humanity, said uh, Dalen McClee. You can't base every day of your life off of one interaction you have with one individual. Wow. So it's nice to hear some common sense realism in these times. Uh, the police officer he saved talked to a local Pittsburgh television station and uh, recounted how Dalen actually said, quote, I'm not going to let you die. The uh, officer, police lieutenant Thomas Kolensik, uh, said, there are just no words to describe, you know, as his voice cracked. And uh, officers have uh, rallied to uh, recognize Dalen McClee for his heroics and his humanity. And so do we here at the Dan Prof Show. So we end with uh, a good Samaritan, a good man, Dalen McClee. Thanks for joining us all week on the Dan Prof Show. Have a great weekend, a safe weekend, an enjoyable weekend, COVID-free weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.